Mike Braley, it's a great pleasure to have you on 20 Questions With. And in fact, you are, I suppose, emblematic of why I set up this podcast in the first place, because what I wanted to do was interview the people who really interest me. And therefore, it's a great treat to be doing exactly that with you, because although I'm too young to remember the so-called Botham's Ashes of 1981, in the 1980s, I got a VHS, a video of that series, the highlights. And of course, you were a very important part of that. You're famous for being arguably England's greatest ever captain, 18 victories, just four defeats. Ben Stokes might have something to say about that. We're talking on the eve, the very eve of this summer's ashes, which we all look forward to with great anticipation. You're also famous for being a great brain, first class degree from Cambridge, and you've spent the last 40 years or so being a psychoanalyst. You've written this new book. It's not your first book. And it's not, in a sense, a sort of typical biography. It's a memoir of the mind, as you describe it. And it's called Turning Over the Pebbles. And it's quite as I would have expected it to be. It's a fascinating read. It takes in cricket, but it also takes in your approach to intellectual areas and the rigour with which you think about things. So I'm going to start my 20 questions with you by asking you this. You explain it in the book, but just now, again, in your own words, tell us why you've called this memoir Turning Over the Pebbles. Thank you. Hope I live up to your expectations. Turning Over the Pebbles is is looking and and seeing what's underneath them on the other side. Sometimes it might be um, mud and muck, and sometimes it might be a beautiful pattern or a lovely pebble or some glorious little animal, fish or something. So, And I think that, well... To start with being a psychoanalyst, it is looking turning over pebbles in people's lives, both the pebbles of what what they're just uh, how they're just feeling and being in relation to the analyst, me, let's say, in the room, and also something to do with their past as well. So you're enabling them and doing it with them, looking at the other side of the pebbles they bring to see what else is true, things that might be subliminal partly unconscious or even deeply unconscious. In the book, you take us back right at the very start to a moment in childhood when you became aware of self. You became aware of your own discrete identity. Yes. And I wonder now, after all these years of psychoanalysis, how you view the self. Yes. And whether you're still, as it were, getting to know yourself. Yes. I think I am. One of the great things about being a psychoanalyst and, well, it's being able, assuming that your compost mentors still, and and sometimes people don't know that they're not, which is a a danger, there isn't a cut-off date where you have to stop working. It's not like a professional, uh, a teacher or a a lawyer or something like that, or indeed a a bricklayer or someone who, who, who... retires from bricklaying and so you're in, you're allowed if you're if you if you if you do it well enough and carefully enough and don't take on ridiculous things unrealistic things you're allowed to keep going and secondly i mean the wonderful one of the wonderful things about it is that every session is different every patient is certainly different and has many differences within them which comes back to your question about self really and one is learning all the time. It's relearning, of course, a lot of it, but relearning in a fresh way in relation to the latest things you've heard or you've thought about, the late, the way you are now, as opposed to how you were before. So I think it's um, 
<clears throat> it's a very fortunate profession to be in. To those who don't spend much time thinking about the unconscious, yeah. yes. what does the unconscious mean to you now? Well, uh, let me tell you just a brief story that's in the book too, which is a story about a philosopher, uh, a psychoanalyst, he's also a philosopher actually really, called Wilfred Bion, B-I-O-N. A lot of people outside the profession haven't heard of him. Most people haven't heard of him, unlike Freud they've heard of. Um, he once said of a patient, it's fascinating how boring the patient is. And that, that's an example of looking at the other side of the of the pebble. You know, you have an experience, you're bored. It happens again, you're bored. You're bored with this patient, not with other people. You're bored, you know, there's some tendency in this patient to get you to be bored. I mean, it's your you you get bored, but something comes from the patient as well. Now, curiosity, you know, well, what does that mean? Why is he boring? Or she? Why? What is it about them? Where does it come from? Well, first of all, what is it about them? Are they boring into you? Are they flat in everything they say because nothing is authentic? Are they, I don't know, there probably could be all sorts of other things. Are they repeating something that they felt their mother did to them and perhaps some, the mother did do to them, talk at them all the time? And then there's a question, well, that's partly this question, the question I've just raised. Where does it come from? So fascinated how boring. And and that means also looking at what the patient is doing and what he does in his own mind to himself, as well as to other people outside the analysis or the therapy. What's he doing? What are the basic assumptions, the underlying fantasies that he has that lead him to be this way? And these things are, are pretty much unconscious. We don't often know very much about them in ourselves. It takes a long time to get at them. Some of them we resist. They're like Jung's shadow selves, you know, the, the self that you don't really want to know about, but which is part of your overall self, your overall being. So what is the unconscious? It's A lot of it is stuff that one doesn't want to know, one's got rid of, unconsciously, I mean. Some of it is a sort of creativity. What do we really know of our own creativity or why we're sometimes quite creative. I, I mean, in ordinary ways. I mean, like a child is creative. I mean, there's an example in the book about one of my grandchildren who, when she was about 18 months old, we were getting her to put her shoes on in the hall, and there was a row of shoes, and we picked up, she picked up a shoe, and she said, foot hat. <laughs> She'd seen the analogy between a shoe is covering the foot and a hat is covering the head, and she called it a foot hat. Now, that seems to me to be you know, a little minor stroke of genius, of creativity. Now, where does that come from, too? So that's a bit of my answer to what do I think of the unconscious as being. Do you feel, and I think you do from reading the book, that the unconscious can have a very significant impact on our direction in life? Yes. I think sometimes, uh, in good ways, you know, one of the other things about turning over the pebbles is it's looking at old memories and seeing that sometimes, why do I remember that particular moment in a whole thousands of school classes, for example? Or why do I remember that particular innings and not another one where I scored far more runs or team played better? Or indeed, where the team played worse, I might have remembered that better. So sometimes these memories are, as it were, unconscious glimpses of how of something one wants to be or do. And I... One of the examples I give is of being Horatio in the school play of Hamlet 
And the one thing that I most strongly remember from that experience is um, Hamlet's words to Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And I think that in my struggles with my very much loved and excellent father, who was a rather doer Yorkshireman, uh, down-to-earth, sceptical, sceptical about things that were fanciful or not proven, sceptical of religion. Um, I think a bit, he loved music, uh, but sceptical a bit of obscure poetry or puzzling and complex philosophy. Um, now, where was I going with this? Um, oh, yes. So, I and I thought, you know, there must be more to something than this. There must be more things in heaven than earth. And I sort of, for a while, it seemed to me maybe that came from religion. I saw Billy Graham, the evangelist from America, on the television. We had a tiny television. You know? And uh, when I was, I don't know, 10 to 12, I think. And he preached at Wembley Stadium once. And I can remember, he said he was more confident that he would go to heaven and that uh, Jesus Christ was the Son of God. I don't know what else he said, but he was more confident about the truths of these things than he was that he was standing there talking to everyone at this very moment and that it would take a team of horses to drag him from, I don't know, the podium or from that stage, that position. And I thought, my goodness, that's some degree of confidence. You know, it must be pretty sensationally true. Yeah, I had that idea or fancy it might be. But I was embarrassed about it because my dad would have been a bit scoffing or a bit, uh, certainly quizzical, to put it at least. So I think I was always looking for something a bit more. I think I found it for a while a bit, in, as I say, in religion, religious ideas. Um, I didn't go very far with that, but I did start. In literature, in which also good novels deal with unconscious processes, amongst other things. There are kind of education in the emotions. And I think they, I was often puzzled by emotional reality, my own and other people, people's. And this sort of gave me a glimpse of something more and different. And then I joined the Samaritans. I moved on to philosophy, where there was an, also an interest in what's more. Is there anything more? Do, what do we know? How much do we know? How do we know? And um, eventually got to psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. You mentioned this incredible thing about human beings, incredible to my mind anyway, that we can remember certain things that have been said. We can pick them out from the thousands and thousands of things that we listen to over the course of our lifetime. Mm. Having studied the mind so closely for so long, does it amaze you? Does the mm. complexity, the enormity, the, the scope of the human mind, does it sort of still astonish you? Yes, and and again, um, in its ways that are creative, in really going for the truth and developmental ways and helping one to develop and grow, which of course happens to us all, more or less, through life, but also in the ways that there can be creative defences, if you see what I mean. One can tell stories to oneself and perhaps to the world that brilliantly sum up your real situation or compensate for it. I mean, in other words, you can have a... Uh, I can't think of anything at this moment, having said that. I'm wondering if you're going to ask me to give you an example. Maybe this is an example. That there's a story, uh, a case study story, told by an analyst who died many years ago called Mervyn Glasser, about a man who used to go into 
houses, break into houses, never steal anything, but cause chaos and throw things around the house, especially women's underwear. Now, I mean, this is a bit, well, this is a sexual fantasy. And so, and then he would leave. And he, so it wasn't, he wasn't doing it for ordinary burglary motives. He was doing it for something else, a compulsion that drove him. And that the analyst, Mervyn Glasser, sort of talked about this as his wish to get inside his mother, but also his anger and, and rage, uh, wanting to throw everything apart of what she had inside that he couldn't get to and couldn't be part of, something like that. So there's an example of a creative, call it in quote, solution from his point of view for something that drove him in his mind emotionally, that caused him no doubt consternation and dis discomfort as well, which he could discharge in this sort of way. Now, and psychoanalysts analysis sometimes can get to help somebody understand that process live with the discomfort that led to it, might be depression, it might be anxiety or whatever, stay with that long enough to not have to act it out in that sort of way if it's destructive to self and others. How much of our lives do you think, Mike, are lived subjectively and how much objectively? Because you talk about the difference between subjectivity and objectivity and you describe the verification process. I'm not quite sure what what you mean by lived objectively. Lived, you mean in in a real world that we. Um, well, what I mean to... by that, for example, is I might feel that it's hot. Yes. But I might yes. be aware that it's not hot. Yes. Yes. Now, if I say it's hot <clears throat> because yes. I've looked at the weather forecast and I know it to be the case, that's perhaps one way of experiencing yes. the world. Yes. If I say I've, I feel hot, but I've looked at the weather forecast and I know that it's actually cold, yes. I still feel hot. Yes. That's a different sort of experience, yes, it is. isn't it? Yes, it is. And, and if you, if you realise that, then you're living more objectively in the world, aren't you? I mean, of course, you've got your subjective feelings. That's the basis for a lot of well, for all one's judgments about the world is one's subjective experience by vision, hearing, touch, taste, smell, um, experience with other people, and so on, emotions. Um, so there's we all have a subjective life, and we wouldn't be alive if we didn't. I mean, that's what, what life is. But we commonly believe, you believe, and I believe most of the time that we're living in an objective world, which is either hotter or colder than it was yesterday, um, which is uh, kind or hostile to us, which is um, on the brink of extinction or maybe yet saved. I mean, we live in a world of which these global warming is a fact of life in, in the world, for example, to go back to warmth and heat. And and there's a constant questioning of both, both ways, you know, is what I'm seeing real? Um, I mean, in trivial ways, one makes mistakes. Like, I'm looking out of the window just now, and I might see something fly across my vision and i might think it's a bird at the end of the garden and it might be an insect close to that sort of thing so one's constantly having an idea of what what's going on outside and realizing that one has to modify it sometimes change it radically sometimes modify it a lot sometimes modify it just a little bit you know it's the wrong bird it's not or pied wagtail it's a magpie not that they're very alike but anyway 
So I think it's psychologically, it's 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 the stuff of life. Uh, um, I love her, but is she suitable for me? Not suitable for me, but is she the right person for me? Suitable sounds a bit sort of precious, but is she the right? Are we right together? You know, a very difficult question. Um, I want to become an engine driver or a cricketer or a teacher. Um, but is that the right thing for me? Is it a complete fantasy, you know, which I should give up as a practical course? By the way, I've got a story about that too. Can I can I interrupt and tell it? You can bring me back to where I was. Now, I was once practicing in the winter at the indoor cricket nets in Finchley, Middlesex indoor cricket nets. And I was already getting to a, a bit old for cricket, for top class cricket. And I was um, tired, it was the evening and so on. And there was a knock on the door of the little room that I was given to change in, being such an eminence grease as I was. And this young chap, youngish chap came in, it turned out he was 28, and he said he was a fast bowler and he wanted to play for Middlesex. And I said, oh, yes. And, uh, you know, I said, who do you play for? And after a while, going around the houses a bit, he told me he played for some club, third eleven. And I said, well, you know, it's rather a long way from the first 11 of the club, and certainly it's a long way from playing for Middlesex. And why do you think you might possibly play for Middlesex? And after a while, he confided in me that he knew that if he bowled, and I also pointed out that he was about five feet six, and most fast bowlers were a good deal taller and stronger looking, fitter, and they start younger than he did. You know, all that, we went through all that stuff, practical stuff. And eventually he said to me, if I bowled flat out, the games wouldn't last. Now there's a there's a there's a version of the world. I would say it's an you know it's a delusion. There's a version of the world, which I would say compensates for, builds a fantasy around, but which comes to be believed. I think he believed it. Actually, I don't think he was telling me a lie or telling me a story. I think he just believed it. So it's a compensation. So there's an. I would say there's an unconscious, which is something like, oh dear, I'm not sure I'm going to ever become this figure that I'd love to be. And I'm but but he's compensated for it by this great panoply, this great um, exaggeration of self. You know? I want to leave subjectivity and objectivity behind because I want to yeah. pick up on something else you've said already, which interested me. This idea that one might find someone boring, or perhaps that one might find someone boring in a particular context. There's quite a strong argument, isn't there? And of course, on a daily basis, we all find some people more interesting to us than others. And that, yes. that may be largely subjective. I mean, some people yes. might objectively have a bit more to offer in one direction yes. or another. But yes. there is an argument that suggests that everyone's interesting, that everyone, if you, if you tap yes. into them, yes. has a story to tell. Yes. And if only we listen hard enough. Yes. And, and that's rather how I imagine you as a cricket captain and I don't know it this to be a fact but it's how I imagine you that you were able to tap into something in most of those who played for you or perhaps in everyone who played for you so that through different man management you were able to get something close to the best out of them well it's a very it's a very nice idea and I think there's some truth in it obviously well I do think there's some truth in it um it can become a bit of a legend too and there were plenty of times when I wasn't in that frame of mind even if I could do that sort of thing sometimes. And, you know, I could do things that were not helpful, getting very impatient with people when they were trying their best, or things of various kinds, a bit 
a little bit timid towards older and senior players to me when I first became captain of Middlesex and people who played for England many, many times and were better cricketers than I was. And I found it much harder to deal with them and to help them to be even better than they were or might be than with new younger players, with people who are younger, younger than me often and had everything ahead of them and obviously didn't know as much as I did or, or these senior players did. So, yes, I think there's something in that. that it's again turning over the pebbles of the other person and, and finding the interesting thing. The Sometimes it's an interesting thing behind a difficult facade, like the person who I felt when I said to him, why don't you try this? And he looked at me with contempt, I thought. Well, I think it was. But I realised at various points, with differing degrees of conviction and lastingness, that there was something insecure, that it was as much that he was unsure whether he could do this, which he dealt with by saying, oh, no, that's a stupid idea. You're really stupid, and I'm the one that's... uh, incompetent in that exchange and I think that happens in analysis sometimes too that one is confronted by someone who makes one feel incompetent of course they may have a good point that's that's also the truth but sometimes it's that they aren't there not to be the one that knows first and they make you feel they ignore what you've said they might say it back to you and a few minutes later as if it's come only from them that's just a little example how important for you as a leader, as a captain, was empathy? Because there you were, this Cambridge graduate with, as I said, a first-class degree in classics, and you were managing as a captain people who came from different backgrounds, different intellectual backgrounds. How did you avoid coming across to people who didn't have the sort of education or success that you had in your back pocket? How did you avoid coming across as as appearing as if you thought that you were better than them. How did you get like them arrogant. on side? Yeah, how arrogant. Did you, what exactly? How did you avoid arrogance? Where did you find the empathy? Well, I don't think I always did avoid it. It's one thing. I tried to, and I, I think in many, in many cases, I didn't have to try too hard either. I mean, people may be completely impractical, unpractical, or completely emotionally unintelligent, and be very, very clever and have excellent degrees. And other people can be never have left school at 14 in those days or 16 or 15, whatever it is today, and can be very shrewd, very in touch, very empathic themselves, uh, very direct, sometimes blunt, funny, all sorts of things. You know, so I, I and I think I really believe that and believed it and cricket helped me to believe it, you know, to know it more. But I also do think that the curiosity about why people, it's curiosity as well, why do people, including me, why are we on form one day and totally off form the next? What's that? Why is it so? I mean, why do I suddenly drop off my form, lose my form? And why do they? And you know, what is it that is going on in their minds? And joining the Samaritans was was one element in that, because... When I was at Cambridge, I joined the Samaritans, not quite knowing why, but I found I could listen to people and be empathic to some extent, as far as I was emotionally able to be, but certainly sympathetic with their depression or their even their, to some extent with their suicidality. You know? So I think curiosity, interest, wondering what makes people tick, 
What's the best way of dealing with Ian Botham as compared with Bob Willis? They were very different in, as people, even though they were both great big characters and in some ways quite extrovert. I mean, Ian Botham definitely was, and Bob was at times. But Bob was much more likely to believe you if you teased him for being a wounded old camel. Cruel teasing, but if you did. But as if you said that to, to Ian Botham, he'd sort of bristle up and say, who do you think you're talking to? You know? And he bowled twice as fast, that sort of thing. And that's a very simple example. Let me take you back then to that 1981 series. And if I've got my chronology right, England had come off a pretty disastrous tour of the West Indies, where Ian Botham had been, now Sir Ian Botham, had been captain. Yes. Not just that, but you were coming off the back of defeat at Lords. England were coming off the back of defeat at Lords, or maybe a draw at Lords. I can't remember. But Ian Botham. It was a draw at Lords. It was a defeat in the first test. Of- in the first England. test. Yeah. And in that draw at Lords, Ian Botham, still captain, bagged a pair. He got two yes. noughts, yes. which is not a good thing for anyone to get, yeah. let alone the captain at the home of cricket in an Ashes series. Yes. And he then stopped being captain. And you were brought back. You'd previously been captain. You were brought back to captain. You asked to captain, I think by Alec Bedser, then the chairman of selectors. And you were asked to be the captain in that third test at Headingley. I think he was bringing you back for four tests, the remaining four tests of a six-match series. And in that game at Headingley, England looked almost certain to lose. And had had that been the case, England would have gone 2-0 down with just three tests to play. But then a combination of extraordinary things happened. Ian Botham scored a magnificent 100. Bob Willis took eight wickets and Australia failed to reach their target of whatever it was, 143 or whatever it was. 130 or 129. And from there, England go on, instead of losing the series, to win the series 3-1. Botham, further heroics. And it's one of the great stories of English cricket. You touched just then on how you motivated Ian Botham. But in a little bit more detail, explain to us how you were able to come in, replace him as captain, and immediately bring out the very best of this man to such an extent that with a, in combination with other performances, other performers, England were able to turn that series on its head and create legend. What did you do? Because you could imagine that his ego must have been extraordinarily fragile at that point. Well, one thing I did was get a lot of luck, and the team did as well. But that's an element in many sporting encounters, but in that one, it was particularly so. But nevertheless, I I think I did something with Ian Botham. First of all, it was easier for him to respond to me than it would have been for anyone else. First of all, I was no sort of competitor to him as a cricketer, I was a lot older than him. He used to call me his grandfather figure, let alone his father figure. Um, and I had been his first captain when he played for England. And so, you know, he'd, he'd become a test player with me as captain. We got on well, um, very different people, but we got on very well. He could enliven me with his teasing, his joking, his enthusiasm, his mocking. Uh, you know, he was a live wire. And I could both give him his head at times you know, go for it, enjoy yourself, you know, relax, which I think is one of the things I managed to do something of in that test match. And also could sometimes say to him, look, I can't bowl you if you bowl like this. You know, you've got to, if, you're, if you're going to come in and bowl medium pace half volley, or if you're going to keep on bouncing on the slow pitch 
a chap called Peter Tui who's just hit you for 18 and over or something in and over just because you want to prove that you're stronger than he is. I didn't say all this, but I conveyed it. You know, you're coming off. So I could I could also be firm with him, I mean, tough with him, and say things to him that he didn't want to hear, but he would go away and think about sometimes, quite often, actually. So I think that was it. I mean, when, it when, I, we, when we started bowling in that test match in 1981, he was running in more slowly than he had when I last played with him, which was a year and a bit before, and or a year before, only a year before. And um, he was sort of stepping into the crease, I noticed, to bowl, to try and make the ball spring out, you know. Now, I mean, almost an exaggerated thing. And I thought, Ian Botham at his best, he runs through the crease, he hits the ground hard, he naturally swings the ball away. He doesn't need to do fancy stuff like that. It's not him. And it takes away a lot of his assets. And I took him off after three overs in that first innings, and he said to me, how can I bowl three overs spells? And I said, how can I bowl you if you bowl medium pace half volleys? And I also nicknamed him the sidestep queen. And I said, you know, what was all this stuff? Run through the crease, you know, like you always did. And he did. So I gave him his head, but I also said, no, you can't, I'm not, you know, this is not right at the moment. You come back in a little while later. So I think that helps. And when he batted on that pitch in the first innings, he got 50 in a low scoring performance by England on a, on a very good pitch to bowl on with Lily, Alderman and Lawson, fine fast bowlers, fast medium bowlers. Um, and he, he got a ball that he tried to hit off. It was about to hit horse off Lily and it flew from just short of the length, went past the end of his chin. And he looked up to me as if to say, was I going to be critical of him because he was trying to play a forcing shot off that ball? And I said, no, just enjoy yourself, you know. Keep going the way you, you you know, free up. and Because that was the best chance he had on that pitch. And indeed, often was the best chance for him. What did you mean by sidestep queen? Well, I meant that the sidestep is this stepping in in, a, in an exaggerated way. And queen, probably a word I, it couldn't be used now, it meant sort of as if you were effeminate. As if you, as opposed to uh, the rough, strong, fast bowler um, from the pit. Or the village. People wouldn't use that expression anymore. But what you were trying to convey to him was that he needed to be more direct in your view. Yes. yes. And more robust, direct, straightforward, forthright, aggressive. Not to try and use some change of, of action, which maybe some coach had suggested to him, to get a particular effect, to be thinking about it in that sort of way. Think more simply, do what you always did best and run in. One of the hallmarks of the Baz McCullum, Brendan McCullum, Ben yes. Stokes, Rob Key yes. era is or seems to be freeing people yes. from a sense of failure or a fear yes. of failure. Yes, I agree. And it seems to me that that's part of what you were trying to do because cricket, success in cricket is fragile, isn't it? Yes. You know, you yes. can be in the nets and you could be out three or four times. You could play beautifully otherwise and you're yes. there for an hour if you need to be. Yes. But it, yes. one mistake out in the middle yes. in front of millions watching, listening, yes. tens of thousands in the ground, and you're out, you're back to the pavilion. How do you, as a captain, achieve that, that people can go out there under all that pressure and feel as free as they can to express themselves? Yes. It's a, first of all, let me say, you know, one of the things that excites me about this Ashes series that's just about to begin is precisely the way England have played under Ben Stokes and Brendan McCullum. 
and um, and this extraordinary turnaround from having what was it won one of seventeen tests, the previous seventeen tests, to winning eleven out of thirteen, and one of the others they lost by one run. So it's extraordinary change, and they've done a lot of very good things to get that to happen. And one of the things, as you say, is to take away the fear of collective failure and individual failure to a large extent. Everyone has some fear of failure. I mean, especially when it performance sport or a performance activity in public. Of course, one does. But he's freed them up from a lot of it. And I think with Ian Bosom, yes, perhaps there was something of that. He was that way inclined himself. And I think in relation to him, I could also at, at times help him in that direction if he lost his way a bit. We did like that. But I think that the, the biggest difference or a big difference is that these these two people, Ben and Brendan, what do they call it? Ben Buzz, Buzz Ben, whatever it is. They they have sort of emphasised attack over defence, whereas I didn't always do that. I thought sometimes one should be more defensive or work on one's defence. Or uh, and I was um I wasn't. Second thing was that I wasn't as um anything like the sort of inspirational player that both Stokes and both them are or were. You know, so I and but. Fear, fear of failure can make one extremely tense and limited in defence, looking for the worst. And I think one of the things that um, Stokes has, and, and, and McCollum have done is say to their players, look, we got into this game because as children, as boys, we loved playing it. We've lost, it's, it's easy to lose that love and to become cautious, aware of the number of ways you can go wrong, get worried and anxious about it grimly determined and grimly defensive and uh, let's change that let's let go of some of that let's recover the love of the game as he put it on the radio the other day play with a smile on our faces whatever happens and uh, and there's a lot to be said for it now i don't think there's everything to be said for it in life in cricket as in life you you need that spontaneity you need to allow your your spontaneity to express itself and have confidence like that but you also need to know when you need to change and when you're getting things wrong that are too damaging and that might be by attacking too much as well as by attacking too little so i don't entirely agree with that i think it'll it's a more a matter of timing and of temperament and what people are good at i hopefully they have that too does it not fascinate you? I know it does fascinate you. The extent to which cricket, and I suppose sport more widely, is psychological. Yes. I mean, cricket is a succession in many ways of one-on-one duels, yes. one player pitting themselves yes. against another, whether it's yes. someone trying to run someone out, someone bowling someone, someone batting against someone, someone trying to catch someone, and so forth. It's, of course, a team game as well. But yes. in addition to those two things, it is also a deeply personal game. It's a game that is played so much within one's own mind. Yes. If you're a bowler trying yes. to do away with the fear, we've talked about the fear of failure, but the fear of bowling wide, seizing up, yes. Getting, yes. getting the yips. Yes. If you're, if you're a batter trying very hard to conquer any demons that might inhibit the flow of your form and so forth, how much, and of course one can't quantify this in percentage terms, but how much of those who succeed in cricket do you think is about the mind and how much is about the sort of physical talent, as it were? You're right. It's impossible to, to say. I, I know about myself that I was a, a slow developer. I mean, I had a, a bit of a sort of flurry of su- success that came within my first year, but that was 19. 
But then I, not so much, and county cricket, not so much, a tour of South Africa, not much. And then playing a bit longer and then stopping for five years. And then even after I came back as captain at the age of 29 at Middlesex, for about four years, I don't think I scored 100 in county championship cricket. And then I started to play better. And then I got picked for England at 34. Now, I, I think I, well, you see, all of these things have a mind element in them. I think one of the reasons that I developed late was that I had been playing it a little bit as a hobby. You know, I'd been in conflict whether to do it full time, whether to be a you know, do philosophy, whether to go into the civil service, other things. I'd sort of a bit played at it. I didn't know I was doing that, but I think in retrospect I was. And I think I could too easily run myself down. So that if I started off playing badly, or the bowler was bowling really well, I could almost say to myself, well, you're not good enough for this. And, you know, then I wouldn't play so well. And um, I remember embarrassing myself out against Surrey once at Lords for Middlesex. And they were a great moaning team. They had a wonderful team of moaners. And they'd groan at slip if you played and missed, or you got a thick edge and it went for four. And they'd sort of make comments under their under their the palm of their hand, you know, that you're half here, really saying this bloke can't play. And I started to believe them, you see, and I eventually missed a perfectly straight ball, was bowled out for 11 or something, a painful 11. So I think that that sort of tension and anxiety, I needed to, as John Arlott once wrote about me, I needed physician heal yourself, he said. So I needed to be able to do that with myself. So a lot of it is played in the mind. A lot of it is in resilience. You play and miss a few times and still the next ball is the first ball of the rest of your life and the next ball is the first thing you've got to, you know, it's gone, that thing. You, you, you don't want to let it wear you down. Maybe you learn from it, but don't let it wear you down. So I think a huge amount. You referenced a tour of South Africa, but you were against apartheid, weren't you? Yes. I mean, you called, you called out apartheid. You, yes. you, what, you, you wanted England to stop touring South Africa. Yes. Well, it took me a while to get to that and the tour of South Africa and what I saw there and staying on for three weeks afterwards and traveling around the country and talking to lots of different people of all sorts helped me to believe that it was a very wrong, bad system. And then the Dolavira affair prompted me to oppose the MCC and then to come in contact with Peter Hain and the arguments against sporting contacts at international level with South Africa. It took a while. Let me ask you about your own batting qualities. You're very humble about your achievements with the bat. Actually, at test level, you averaged in the low 20s, which is unusually low for a batsman. Yes. And, I mean, you scored over 30 hundred first-class hundreds, I think. I and think it was in, over 40, yes. Was it over 40? And, yes. in, and indeed, when you were on a tour of Pakistan, I think you scored a first-class triple century. Mm -hmm. So you were no mug with the bat. No, no. I'm curious to know whether you think you could have achieved more as an yes. international batsman. You talk in the book about your highest test score, 91, in India. And there were rest days in those days. And you ac accepted a, a, an invite to dinner on the yes. basis it would be reasonably early. And you ended up getting back quite late. And you wondered whether that had meant... Because mm. you were not out over that rest day on 60-odd. And you wondered yes. whether that might have impacted your dismissal before reaching your century. I wonder whether, if we think about this psychologically, whether there was anything that might have turned out differently, whether you could have approached it in a different way. 
that would have made you a more successful batter statistically? And as part of this question, if I may, how did it help you or hinder you as a captain that you were not the best batter in a particular team? But the, the second the second question is easier to answer, I think. I think it probably helped on the whole because you knew what it was like for other people. You couldn't so easily be dismissive of what, what they'd done because you knew you would have done it probably less well than they would in many in some cases. Now, I, I don't want to under, underplay myself as a batsman. I became a good county batsman, perhaps even a very good county batsman, on the fringe of test level. But I never quite played as well against some of the same bowlers in test cricket as I had in county cricket. And it was because of anxiety and tension. And if I could have relaxed a bit more, if I could have had a, a little bit more, spent a little bit more time on and finding the right coach and getting the right advice at the right times. Jeff Boycott always had a coach that he went back to in Yorkshire who 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 could talk frankly to him about how he was playing and how he'd changed and whatever. I never had that. And I think that was a bit of arrogance in that too, that I didn't find someone who would have been played that role. So I think I could have done better. I could never have been, to go back to your question about physical talent and eyeball coordination, I could never have been a David Gower or a Joe Root or someone, no, however, whatever my mind state had been in, but I could have been a bit better. Apart from the obvious quality difference, skill level difference yeah. between county cricket and international yeah. cricket, though, are you suggesting there was something else going on as well? I mean, I think of the generation of batsmen that I watched when I was, you know, in my teens or whatever it was. I think of Mark Ramprakash. I think of yeah. Graham Hick. Yes. These were two batters who at county yeah. level would just, first class level, would just, yeah. you know, you'd, you'd almost use the word genius to describe yeah. them. Perhaps yeah. you would. Yeah. Well, and they couldn't quite make it. Yes. at test level. I mean, they had, they played dozens of times for England and, and they both scored a couple of centuries or however many centuries they scored, but they, they didn't, it was felt, reach their potential at yeah. test level. Yeah. Is there a sort of a beyond the physical skill levels? Is there something else going on? I mean, you mentioned the anxiety. Do, do, do people put more pressure on themselves as well as yeah. feeling external pressure at test level? Yeah. I think some do. And probably those two did. Uh, I don't, not that I knew them closely enough to really know, but as an observer from a distance, I think they probably did. I mean, Ian Chappell said an interesting thing to me about Mark Ramprakesh, which I had never thought of, which was that he thought he was more interested or concerned about the stroke looking correct as a perfect forward defensive shot than of turning that stroke into a single. In other words, the ultimate pragmatist was Ian Chappell. Now, he, he he would get a bounce and he would somehow jump up and nudge it down here and get a get way to the other end. Most of, Someone else might more elegantly have got out of the way or even have, have clipped it down the fine leg for one. But, you know, that sort of a pragmatism and a ruggedness that I admired in, in Chapel and a lot of other people that makes the most of their ability. But I think, yes, I think you're right about those two. Could you talk to us briefly about the fear of facing really lethally fast bowlers? Because you were playing in an era where helmets weren't anything like as commonplace as they are today. I think you perhaps even pioneered a a certain type of protection that protected your, your, or was designed to protect your temples. Yes. But you faced some of the great, great fast bowlers. Yes. Yes. What on earth was that like? Well, it was pretty scary at times. I think one thing I used to think, and I think it's right, is that it's, at least in my case, it wasn't so much fear that that came into it. It was more 
it was more a matter of it becoming like a battery. In other words, if you had to keep doing it, you knew that sometime or other you're going to make a mistake, just as you do it against any good bowler. But that mistake might mean you're getting hit on the head or in the throat or break your arm or your ribs or whatever it might be, or hit in yes, or the head. Um, and so, so I think it must have been very hard for people who played against really fast bowling day in, day out. I mean, more than I did. Most counties had a really fast bowler in those days. I mean, a really top fast bowler, but they probably only have one, occasionally two. So you'd have two or three other bowlers who weren't that lethal. So you've got a bit of respite. I want to come back before we finish to sort of intellectual pursuits. But first, I have to ask you, and, and this interview will inevitably go out once the ashes have begun. So, you know, it's an invidious thing to be yeah. to be answering. But they start tomorrow in Edgbaston. And I cannot, I mean, prediction, I suppose, is a mugs game, but let's go in for it anyway. I can't, I can't visualise who's going to win this series because I was at the World Test Final the other day and Australia looks strong. Mm. England are playing this fantastically exciting brand of cricket as we've yeah. talked about. I can't call it, and I wonder whether you have whether you feel the same or there's there's a voice in you somewhere saying no. I, I, just something tells me, and 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 you've played the game, you've captained at the highest level, you've achieved everything we've talked about. Is there something that that makes you think it's going to be Australia or it's going to be England? No, I'm like you. Uh, <clears throat> so if I, I mean, actually, I haven't been asked the question very often, but when I when I have a, I think I, I've said two two. Cool. But uh, of course, it could just as easily be 3-1 either way or 4-0 even. You know? I mean, 2-2 requires a draw in one of the five tests. Yeah, well, it'll and... rain a bit sometime, won't it, this summer? <laughs> we, shall, we, we shall see. I, we know that Ben Stokes is not a fan of drawing test matches. Yeah, that's another just difference I have with him. You know, some of the great performances have been the achievement of a draw. Well, I interviewed, I interviewed Monty Panesar for this podcast yeah. And I had the privilege earlier this week of having a net with him. Oh, did and you? Yeah. I did. But some of what I remember of Monty, in fact, perhaps what I remember most about him, and he got a hundred, he took 167 test wickets. He won a series with Graham Swan and, of course, with Sir Alistair Cook and Kevin Peterson's help out in India and a phenomenal achievement. It hadn't been done since David Gower's team in the, in the 1980s. But what I remember most, perhaps, about Monty is staying up all night in, I think, 2013 and watching him come in towards the end, helping Matt Pryor, who scored a century, I think, save the final test of that series in New Zealand, which meant the series ended nil-nil. And then we could take them back to England because they were about to tour us. And it meant that instead of losing a series and then perhaps winning a series... We had that that solid base of a jaw overseas. Yeah, that the mm. grit that he yeah. showed as a yeah. batsman, as a tail ender. You then think back to Cardiff, of course, when he yeah. helped save that that With Ashes Test match. With Jimmy Anderson and Paul Collingwood yeah. in, in in the first game, I think of an Ashes series, which meant it, it, I was going to say it won us a draw. Yes. That it, yes. it was a draw that started the series, yeah. and we went on to win that Ashes. So draws can be magnificent, yes. and that's part of the joy of Test cricket. And yeah. I just want to ask you this, because there are those, including myself, who really fear for the future of the game. And I yeah. went to the World Cup final in 2019 with my dad when England won in the Super Over. I've, I don't think I've ever been present at a sporting occasion that has made me feel as I did physically that day. I was sort of shaking. It was drama like one could almost not imagine. It felt unreal It was as it was happening. You, of course, opened the batting in a World Cup final, sadly in a losing cause to the West Indies, but you, you opened the, the batting, I think, alongside Jeff Boycott. So we know that limited overs cricket can be exciting. T20 can be good fun. Of course, I'm happy we won that World Cup as well towards the end of last year. But for me, there's nothing like test cricket because of the variety of possibilities 
mm. because of the drama, because it can meander for four and a half days, four and three quarter mm. days, and then suddenly explode into into mm -hmm. a result because of the test it really puts you under. Mm -hmm. Do you fear for the future of test cricket? Yes. Two two things worry me. One is how little cricket's played in state schools and how much competition there is, you know, for the time that there might be. And you need money and you need a decent surface and you need a coach or somebody who, and you need equipment. So it's expensive. And it's quite understandable, but it's a shame. And the second thing is the rise of T20 domestic leagues that are going to start owning players like baseball clubs own players and deciding when they're going to be allowed to be available to play in test matches if there are, are still any test matches. And they cream off the top because they don't build the players from young age, unlike conventional cricket where you have schools, clubs, junior teams, second teams, first teams, England teams. Um, so, yes, I'm worried about that, too. Um, not that I dislike T20 or one-day cricket. I like it. But I don't like it pushing the longer game into more and smaller and smaller corners or windows. And it's a very unusual situation, Test Cricket, because there is a market, undoubtedly, for it in England, certainly. Yeah. And there's a market for it in, in Australia. But because yes. it's a global game, yes, the sport seems to be being dragged away from that market. Yes, I know. In, defi in defiance of the market, if you see what yes. I mean. As a sort of a, there's a bigger market that is squashing yes. a smaller right. market. That's right. So, the, I mean, one predicted outcome, I, I don't know whether I would predict it or not, but it might happen, is that there'll be three or maybe four teams playing test cricket in 10 years' time. Which yeah. would be tragic. I mean, they might play triangular tragic. series or series exactly. of courses. Because if we were to lose South Africa or lose Sri Lanka, these proud histories of... It would be, West, it would, Indies, West Indies, it would be terribly Pakistan. sad. I know, I agree. Okay, two quick final questions yeah. then. One is religion. We talk yeah. about religion in the book, and I'm just curious now, just for those who haven't yet read the book, what, yeah. are, are you a religious person in any way? Well, I don't believe the supernatural things that are central to certainly Christianity, not, not quite so central to Buddhism, say, by the way. But to the three major religions, they're pretty central. And, well, three of the four, Hinduism's a different kettle of fish, I think. But I think that religion is, can be, and often sometimes is, a way of thinking about what meaning, how does life have meaning and what is its meaning. And if you take some of the expressions of supernatural things metaphorically, and God is not so much a sort of being with a white beard up in the clouds, you know, that sort of simple idea, but a, a ground of our being, which means something which one can judge things by and live by that's deep in oneself, that one gets from other people and sees in other people sometimes, a sort of a sort of divinity or creativity or value, something that really appeals to one. And all the all the struggles that religion has about guilt, anxiety, mercy, redemption, forgiving, they're all central concepts of life, you know. So, and meaning, love, hate, betrayal, all the, I mean, lots and lots of concepts are embodied, or embodied is perhaps not the right word, are there in Christianity or in other religions too, not just Christianity. And so one can, you know, thinking about those stories, and I mean, just to give you one example, Oedipus comes back, marries his mother, having killed his father, not knowing it was his father, 
and becomes king and there's a blight on the land. He tries to find out what the cause of the blight is. And the oracle says there's a there's a, a blight in the society that's causing this damage. And eventually the message to him is, you're the man. It's you. It's your blight. on the And, he, you know, he can hardly believe it. And he blinds himself and his wife commits suicide. Now, you are the man is also something that often happens in psychoanalysis. It's you who's got this arrogance or this uh, hard attitude to people. And I think you're the man is often, you know, as Jesus said, uh, you know, he, he attacked the hypocrites most, not not the, you know, the swindlers or the prostitutes or the this or that. He, he attacked, he didn't forgive them. He didn't say they were fine, but he attacked people who were hypocritical most of all. Uh, in other words, um, you're the man. You, you've got. You, you, you look into your own heart. Let the man who's without sin cast the first stone. He said. So I think there's all sorts of moral and how to live questions in religion, to which some of the answers are good. Some of the answers become fundamentalist and very bad. Final question is: How do you? What are your passions outside of cricket and outside of work? Mm. You, you talk about the fact that you listen to less music now, and that you. When you listen to music, you want to give yourself to it properly, I think. But you talk about novels in yes. the book. Henry James features yes. prominently. Yes. And I wonder whether you still read, whether you read a huge amount. And, and just give us a sense of what life is like for Mike Brearley now at the age of 81, having achieved yes. everything you have so far. Yes. What, what sort of, what excites you? Grandchildren. Not that I'm an expert in any way, but garden, the garden, a bit of the work, not as much as I... We did, but you know, making, shaping the garden, doing things like that, looking through binoculars at birds or flowers or distant things. Partly because I can't see so well as I used to. Uh, going to good plays, films, TV, sometimes. Though I don't think there's very much good sport. Cricket, watching cricket, the best cricket, watching the best football, rugby. I like those sports in particular. Sometimes, you know, work. I'm still doing three days a week work and coming to see something a bit better, patient coming to see something a bit better, something happening between us that makes a change that seems for the good, um, that's of interest and a struggle sometimes. Someone's courage in that way. So the work and discussing work at seminars uh, sometimes or, you know, those kinds of things can be very satisfying too. You said you you don't do as much of the work in the garden anymore than you, no, than you did. No, I, I, I always look after the lawn. But I'm curious, to, to, because so much of your life has lived in the mind, and yet you did an immensely physical job yes. at the start of your working life in the form of cricket. And so I can imagine that something like gardening can be, a, I mean, it's a cliche, of course, but... It, can, it can be a release. I mean, Prospero spent too much time with his books, didn't he, in Shakespeare's The Tempest. Yes, it's important to have an earthiness as well, isn't it? Yes, it is. Mike Brearley, it's, it's been a pleasure to interview you, as I hoped and expected it would be. I'm really grateful to you for spending the time with me. And um, yes, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. I enjoyed it too.